Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. I'm just grateful that you're here today. I'm grateful for whatever brought you here today, that you're here and we have this opportunity to talk about some very surprising things about Easter. Now, I need to admit to you that I'm well aware that the Easter story we're very familiar with. In fact, I imagine every person here probably could give a chronology of the events of the last hours of Jesus before his death and then his burial and then his resurrection and then even what happened after his resurrection. You're familiar with that story. We hear a lot about it, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins after being betrayed by a friend and abandoned by his disciples and condemned by the Jewish leaders and executed by the Roman soldiers. We're familiar with that part, how awful his death was. And then we know that there was that Saturday between his death and his resurrection where things were just very silent. And yet God was working. God is still there. God is still present, but there's silence. But then Sunday morning, as Emily read during the song today, there was this resurrection. Jesus came out. What a huge surprise. Everybody is expecting him to stay dead. And yet he comes forth alive and he's seen and touched and heard and experienced by followers and by foes alike. They, over the, the, years, the days and years to come, they, they see this risen Jesus and they experience him and they know that he truly did conquer death and he's alive forevermore. And the problem is, is we're so familiar with this story, it's easy to say, meh. So what? So what? So what Jesus has risen from the dead? What's the big deal about that? And that's what we're here to talk about today. Because I I just want to point out to you a couple big surprises that are available for you and for me because Jesus is risen from the dead. These are like Easter surprises. Now, you know, maybe some of you were hunting for eggs yesterday or you'll hunt for eggs today, or maybe you'll be surprised by what's in your Easter basket. I hope you got one. But whatever, whatever happened, may all your heart's desire for chocolate come true. I just want to say that at the beginning. But whatever it is, you, I hope, are surprised when you stop and think about what the resurrection of Jesus means for you and for me today. Now, to set the context, we've been spending time these last several weeks just getting ready for Easter and Good Friday and all of that, the the final days of Jesus on earth. We've been focusing on the fact of God's love for us and how his love was shown through the events of Good Friday and Saturday and Sunday, Resurrection Day. And we're seeing how God loves us and we're seeing that this is what his love is like. And we've talked about the fact that that his love is able to welcome anybody, whoever they may be. And the fact that his love has the capacity to rescue anyone, no matter how lost or how far away they may be from him. He's able to rescue them. And we've also looked at the fact that today, what we're looking at is the fact that he has the power, his love has the power to conquer death. And that's what we're focusing on this morning as well. So I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter two. Now there's a hardback Bible, black covered Bible in the chair in front of you. And pull it out, turn to page 976. 
Maybe you have the Bible on your phone. Maybe you want to Google it and find the passage. I encourage you to do that. But on page 976 or in your Bible, however you want to access it, I want to encourage you to follow along here because here's a description of the significance, the surprising significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus for those who put their trust in Christ. This is the change that his love, his death and resurrection brings to their lives. And it's absolutely shocking. It's truly surprising what he's done there as well. And so 976, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, I encourage you to follow along as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Now I gotta tell you, one of the things that's very difficult about studying the Bible and teaching the Bible and preaching about the Bible is that there's a lot of the message of the Bible seems so familiar. We're so familiar with it that we, oh, I can just tune out. I don't have to pay attention. I don't have to listen. And the challenge for us is to constantly go back and see how does this impact our lives today? What difference does this mean for us today? We're not just here sitting in a church service, listening to music, watching kids get almost drowned. You know, we're not just here to witness all that kind of stuff. And we're not just here to endure a sermon as well. We're here to see that there's some very surprising things that can happen in your life and my life because Jesus is risen from the dead. So I'd like to share these Easter surprises with you. And this passage has three big surprises, three surprises for all of us who are here today. The first surprise is this. The first surprise is this. God loves you far more than you and I would ever deserve. God loves you and me in a way that's so much greater, so richer, so much fuller than you and I could ever possibly deserve. God loves us. In fact, the truth is, when you look at who we really are and what we've really done, we really deserve God's judgment. But instead, God chooses to love us. In fact, it says in verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, he did the things that we're about to see. Now, you're probably not surprised by the fact that God loves you. I mean, we hear that all the time. We say it to one another, God loves you, God bless you. We say that kind of stuff. And other people are constantly reminding us of how much that God loves us. But the surprise is that God loves us when we really don't deserve it at all. In fact, we deserve his anger and his judgment. Look at what it says here. We were dead. 
He describes us who are Christians, thus who, all of us human beings, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we walked in these things. The, the difference between trespasses and sins is one's talking about these individual acts, the other's talking about a general tendency of our lives, the general nature of our lives. And the nature of our lives is such as that we're constantly doing things that are sinful in God's sight. That's just the way we're bent. That's our propensity to do that. That's the way we are. We're constantly doing the things that break God's law, hurt other people, and hurt ourselves in the process. The Bible says that's sin. And we're all guilty of that. And not only are we just occasionally making mistakes and hurting one another and hurting ourselves and offending God, you know, oops, I did that, I'm sorry. But there's something else going on. There are actually three enemies that are at work in the world that make it extremely difficult for us to honor God and obey Him. Now look, a lot of us, we try to change. We, you know, every year, January comes along, we make New Year's resolution. I'm going to lose weight, not eat so much. I'm going to get some exercise. I'm going to adopt healthy living habits. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be more spiritual. I'm going to pray more, talk to God more. I'm going to be nicer to my neighbor. I'm going to be a better dad, a better kid. And we constantly have these desires to change and be transformed and turn over a new leaf. I don't know about you, but I always fall short whenever I make those promises. I always blow it. I never follow through. You say, well, that's because you're weak. Yeah, it is. I am weak and I'm foolish and I'm incomplete and incompetent. The truth is, is that all of us fall short. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. We never measure up to what he expects for our lives. We never live up to the potential of our lives. None of us ever do. And there are three forces in the world that are actually working to keep us from changing and really becoming all that God wants us to be and all that we desire to be, truthfully. Notice the first one is right here in verse 2. We walked according to the course of this world. The world is against us. The culture that we live in, the, the, the society that we, we are in. No matter how educated we are, how affluential we may be, no matter how peaceful we get along with other people, there are constantly things in this world that are discouraging us and encouraging us to live lives that are selfish, to get revenge. I was at a meeting on Friday night and one of the pastors there reminded us that we all kind of like those movies that are those revenge movies. You know, the, the, the girl gets kidnapped and the dad comes to the rescue and he smashes everybody up in the process and gets her girl. And, and somebody else, her husband dies, her kids are killed and, and she gets revenge and all the bad guys get what's coming to them. And we go, yeah, yeah, give it to them. We all have that nature to want to fight back, to want to retaliate, to want to assert our own rights. We all have that desire. We want that. The Bible calls that that retaliatory spirit, that's sinful. That's what our culture is teaching us to do. Live for yourself. Fight for yourself. Be selfish for yourself. Yes, they say be, be kind and generous to other people when it's to their advantage. Sacrifice when it's to their advantage, but, but live for yourself. That's at the root of all sin. Not only that, there's another enemy, and it says the, the spirit, the power, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. That's another way, a flowery way of talking about Satan. There really is a devil, a real personality who's the epitome of evil. 
And he really is constantly tempting us and seeking to seduce us and lead us astray. And he's constantly stirring up along with him and all his minions, his demons that are at work in the world. They're constantly fomenting all this strife and all this violence and all this trouble and all this sinful behavior in the world. The selfish, sinful, destructive behavior. The devil's constantly stirring that up. And if that weren't bad enough that there's a devil trying to lead us astray and there's a culture and a world that's trying to lead us astray, I naturally know how to go astray all by myself. This passage also says in verse 3, among whom you once lived, talking about the sons of disobedience, that's a very descriptive way saying all of us people, all of us human beings, men and women that are disobeying God, we, among whom we lived like them, we lived disobedient lives, in the passions, in the cravings of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and by nature we were the children of wrath. He's talking about lust and cravings and things, that natural tendency, that bent in our lives to constantly do what's wrong, to, to tell lies when it's to our advantage to protect ourselves, to, to give in to our cravings, to gluttony, to illicit sex and things like that, to give in to that, to, to be greedy, to be bitter, to be, to be violent when it's in our advantage. We all have that natural tendency to move in that direction. We're bent and broken people because of our sin. So here we are, bent and broken people that are constantly being, being led astray by a, a devil and being led astray by a bent and broken world. How in the world are we ever going to change? That's why it says we're actually the children of wrath. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve to be punished by him. We are so bent and broken, we are so sinful, and that's every single one of us, regardless of how religious we may be, how spiritually oriented we may think we are, no matter how nice and good we are as a citizen, a Boy Scout, a churchgoer, no matter who you are, no matter who I am, I am a child that deserves wrath, God's holy judgment and anger at my sin. That is what I deserve. So if you think, and if I think, that I am loved by God because I deserve to be loved by God, you got another thing coming to you. Because I actually deserve His anger. I deserve His judgment. I deserve His rejection. Can I say it this way? I deserve hell. That's not a very cheery Easter message, is it? Thanks, Pastor. That was real encouraging today. You know why we're talking about this? We're talking about this is because if we're going to move forward and experience all that God has for us, then we've got to face reality. And reality is we deserve his judgment. The reality is we're broken people. The reality is, is we're lost. We have to own up to that. And the minute we do that, the minute we take the first step in acknowledging that I am a sinner and I am lost and I cannot rescue and save myself and make myself, make myself lovable in God's eyes, the minute I do that, that's the first step to spiritual recovery. And I'm not just talking about overcoming an addiction, but the recovery of a new relationship with God. It's the first step. The thing that's remarkable is, notice verse 4. So here's all this description of how bad and rotten and evil and wicked I am and you are. This description of all the human race. 
you know, from Billy Graham and Mother Teresa to the Dalai Lama to, to the guy on Skid Row that's drunk and homeless. Everybody in between. We are lost. We are broken and we are sinful. And in spite of that, notice what verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God loves you in spite of how bad I am and you are. He loves us. He doesn't want to let that sin, that violence, that selfishness, that self-destructive tendency that we all have, he doesn't want that to stand in the way and separate us from him. Because it will. Except that he loves us and he reaches out to rescue us. See, the first Easter surprise that you need to grab hold of today and really grasp is this, that God loves you, that God loves me, even though we don't deserve it. He loves us even more than we deserve. But the surprises get even better. The second surprise at Easter is this, according to this passage, is that not only does God love you more than you and I deserve, but God loves you and he wants to give you a life that's beyond your wildest dreams. A life that's so fulfilling, a life that's so joyful, a life that's so complete, so purposeful. He wants to give you that, and it's beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, many of you are sitting there saying, I just asked a young man after the first service, he's a senior, and it kind of made to it, you know, connected the dots in my mind. And I looked at him and I go, hey, I think he's a senior. Uh, he's graduating in a month and a half. I wonder what he's doing. And he told me he's got plans for his future after graduation, and that's exciting. He's going to join the reserves, and he's got a school he's going to go off to, and that's exciting. That's wonderful. You have plans like that. I have plans like that. This is what our family's going to do on vacation this summer. This is what I'm doing. This is my next big career move. This is who I'm going to get married. We're going to get married on this date, and we're going to do this. And these are our kids, and how I'm going to train them, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to handle this. And we make all these plans, and we say, if these things happen then my life will be complete. I'll be on the right path, on the right trajectory to experiencing life to the fullest. We say it in other ways too. If I just had a little bit more money, I'll be complete. I'll really be happy. If I just married the right person, and if they would be true to me, then, then my life would be complete. If I could just have this possession, maybe it's a new car, a house, a better location, a job promotion. If these people would like me, if I could just network with these folks, then my life would be complete, and I really will be happy, and life will be set. And what this passage is telling us is that you could have all those things and still be miserable. You could graduate from the best school, marry the most wonderful, godly, lovely person you could imagine. You could have all the money in the world, the best network of support and friends, and still be a miserable, sad person. Why? Because God has made you and I to be fulfilled with Him. He created us in such a way that our lives are incomplete without a relationship with Him. And you and I don't naturally have that relationship because of what's described in verses 1, 2, and 3. We're actually His enemies and not His friends. And yet God, who loves us more than we deserve, is willing to give us a life that's beyond our wildest dreams, our wildest imaginations. Let me show you what I mean. Don't take my word for it. Look what the scripture says. 
Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see that? He makes us alive with Christ. He doesn't just give us life. He joins us to Christ, gives us a relationship with him so that now we have his life. I was trying to think, what, what's a way that we could describe this and illustrate it? And I thought about the fact that, you know what, it's like waking up, getting ready for work on a cold bitter windy day in the middle of, of the winter and, and, and you go out to start your car up and click, 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 your battery's dead. Oh no, what am I going to do? I'm going to be late. You call up a friend to run over and give you a jump. Maybe you get, wait for AAA to show up or do something else. You do something, but, but they show up and they lift the hood up and they take the jumper cables and they hook it up to their battery and then they hook it up to your battery and then they rev up the engine and hopefully enough juice gets across the wire and your battery's not too far gone that it comes back to life. There's a sense where you could argue and say that sharing this life of Jesus is like getting a spiritual jump but it's bigger than that because to be honest with you, your buddy's battery that's going to go bad someday and yours will still wear out in a couple years or maybe that year you'll have to replace it thought about those of you that have gone scuba diving you know what I'm talking about you've, you've watched Jacques Cousteau and other people like that on television you see them swimming underwater and with their air tanks and their flippers and their masks and their buoyancy vest and weight belts and you see all this and it's so exciting until you run out of air and if you see the diver go on like this, I'm out of air, that's the universal sign. I'm out of air, I'm out of air, I'm out of air. And you gotta do something about it. Well, the only thing you can do is hopefully find your dive buddy before you pass out, because you shouldn't dive alone, by the way. You find your dive buddy and you go like this, you take your regulator out of your mouth and you go like this, I, that's a signal of I need air. And if that dive buddy likes you and is compassionate, it's a big if, I realize, for some of us. <laughs> they come over and, and they hold on to the regulator and they pull it out of their mouth and they hand it to you and you take two breaths and then they take two breaths and then you take two breaths and the whole time you're kicking as fast as you can to try to get up to the surface and survive. And you're sharing that air. You know, you could say, Jesus is my dive buddy. He gives me his air. Jesus is my jumper starter. He gives me a jump. I just want to say that all these illustrations fall short because it's more than an air tank and it's more than a battery. It's life. I like what Pastor Greg Gauchel says. He said this very simply, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And he's right. We need his life. We need his life all the time. And Jesus, in this passage, is described this way. He says, because of this great love of God, when we trust in him, we are given his life. He made us alive together with him. You see that? I'd underline that with him there. Now notice what it says in the next verse. And he raised us up with him. I'd underline that again because he's trying to make a point by repeating it. And then notice what he says next. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Listen, we get all excited on Easter. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We rejoice that he conquered death in that way. But the story doesn't end with Jesus coming up out of the tomb. It's bigger than that. Because not only does Jesus conquer death and rise from the dead, he comes alive again, but later he ascends into glory. He leaves this world and actually goes back into heaven with a body. He arrives in heaven. And when he gets to heaven, it says in Scripture that he sits down next to God the Father, ruling with him and reigning with him in great power and authority over the entire universe. And so here's Jesus who was condemned to die on the cross, suffering our shame and humiliation because of our sins. He who was innocent. He was the Son of God. He who did this because he loved us. He comes up out of the grave. He ascends into glory and he's seated, ruling over all the earth and over all the universe. And this passage says that the life that God wants to give you and me involves all three of those things. We share his resurrection. We have the promise of new life in heaven with him, a resurrected body. But not only that, we have that same resurrection power available to us. We don't have to give in to sin anymore. We can say no to sin and say yes to God because of that power that's now inside of us, the power of his own spirit's presence. And not only that, as Jesus was ascending into glory, rising up, out of, out of this earth into the heavenly world. As he was doing that, he was overcoming all the forces of this world. It no longer has any control or authority over him. And he raised above all of that. And not only that, he seated with God the Father in the glory of heaven, ruling over everything in the universe. And it reminds us that he has authority even over the devil and the demons and all the forces of wickedness that are alive in this world and operating in this universe. So when you think about those foes that are fighting against us that keep us from really living the life that honors God and experiencing all that God has for us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, Jesus conquered all of those. He set us free from all of those. We're no longer under their authority. We no longer have to do their bidding. We've been set free. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead. And the surprise is is that that life can be yours today a new life where you've been set free. In fact, he describes it even more fully in verse 10. We're gonna jump over eight and nine, come back to that in a minute. I know some of you are worried that we'll forget it, but come back to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that beforehand that we should walk in them. God wants to transform our lives, not only give us a new purpose and a new freedom and life to the fullest, that's sharing Christ's resurrection, ascension, session of, of being an authority over all here. He's not only sharing that kind of life with us, but he wants to change us today and transform us today. You remember back in verses 1 and 2, it says we were dead in sin. Spiritually, this is the true walking dead right there, okay, in verses 1 and 2. Okay, that's, we were walking about in that sin and those trespasses, remember that? Well, here it says God's plan is that he wants us to walk about in good works. Now, not that we do good to try to earn God's favor. It's not that. We'll show you that in a minute, verses 8 and 9. But the fact is, is that the change God wants to make in our lives is that we stop giving in to sin and stop living selfish, destructive lives, stop hurting ourselves and hurting other people, and that there's a change. We have a new relationship with God and now we can live a life in such a way that we're doing good, true good, the kind of good that God would want us to do 
not to impress the others, but because it's an overflow of our relationship with Him. It's the new life being evidenced through Jesus' presence in our lives when we trust in Him. God makes us His workmanship. The word that He uses there, it's talking about somebody carving a statue or painting a picture or writing a beautiful musical score or a piece of poetry. And it's talking about somebody putting a lot of effort and imagination and creativity and designing this beautiful piece of art or literature. God wants to take your life and make that life of yours, no matter how messed up it may be. He wants to change it and transform it and make it a beautiful piece of art for him. He wants to take the story of your life and make it a beautiful poem that encourages others and is a blessing to you and brings glory to your name. He wants to take that mess of a life you have and just add the color and add the brush strokes and make it into a masterpiece that reflects his glory. He wants to take that hard heart of yours and I have naturally and he wants to chisel at it and make it a beautiful statue, so to speak, that reflects his image that you truly could become everything that he means for you to be in Christ. Everything you're longing for, he wants to do. You see, the second surprise of Easter is that there's this life that's so abundant and so free and so full of the joy of God that's available to you. And it's beyond your wildest dreams. And that life is available to you if you have Christ. Because it's all coming from a relationship with Him. There's one more surprise. This is very important. Don't check out now. Don't say, well, you know, He just inspired me with those two things. God loves me beyond my wildest dreams and, you know, more than I deserve. And He has a life for me beyond my wildest dreams. That's really great. I feel so good and encouraged about that. No, you've got to act on it. You gotta cash in, so to speak, to get it. And the way you do that is in this third surprise. Look at verses eight and nine, listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He's talking about people who have already put their faith in Christ, not people who haven't yet. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The third surprise, the most wonderful surprise, is simply this. Everyone can have God's love and God's life, regardless of where they've been and what they've done. This life is available to them. How? Through faith through trusting what God has done, relying on Him, that love and that life that God offers to you that I don't deserve, that's beyond my wildest dreams, that love and life is available to me and to you through faith. Now there's three very important words at the beginning of verse eight. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That word saved means to just simply be rescued. Rescued from what? Rescued from the life of self-destruction that we're all living because of our sin, outlined in verses one, two, and three. The life of death, the life of destruction and judgment that we deserve. We can be rescued from that life. How? Because God has been graciously providing it by grace. Grace just simply means it's a gift. God doing for us what we don't deserve. 
doing beyond our wildest dreams, doing beyond what we deserve. That's God's graciousness. He makes this rescue available to us even though we don't deserve it. Even though we truly deserve his judgment and yet God makes this, makes this salvation possible because he's such a gracious God who's full of mercy, rich in mercy and great love for us as we read back in verse four. But then the third important word there is the word faith. Because this is how we can take the salvation that God freely offers by grace, how it can become my property and your property, how it can become my experience and your experience. It's through faith. I know that's a word we hear a lot about. I believe. You hear Oprah saying, just believe. Other people say, just believe. I believe, pastor. And I know I'm going to receive because I believe. I'm actually not a southerner. What does it mean to believe? Well, let me spell this out so we all understand because this is a very simple word that's very familiar, that's very badly misunderstood in our world today and even in the church. To believe, simply it starts with you've got to know something. You have to know something. It's not just a feeling. It's, it's, it's actually a fact out there that you know about. And not only do you know about it, but you move a little bit further and you say, I accept that that fact is true. I accept that it's true. So you know about it, you accept it's true, but then you move even deeper in your relationship with that fact. And you say, you know what? I'm relying on that fact. I'm depending on that fact as if my life depends on it. It matters that that fact is true to me. It's relying, it's trust. It's accepting it's true, but then depending on it that it's true. You heard Haley and you heard Tyler both say today that they were depending on Christ for their forgiveness and acceptance with God. They said it in their own words as young people. In the first service, Carolyn, Earl, and Emily all said, we're relying on Christ, we're depending on him. Not our church affiliation, not our good deeds, not the fact that I was in scouts, not the fact that I served my country in the military, not because I was a good mom. I'm depending on Jesus to rescue me and take away my sin. That's the only way I'll get his love because there's nothing about my life that deserves the love of God. I deserve his judgment. And it's trusting in Jesus. That's how I get this life, the life that's really full and really joyful that I'm stepping into and, and publicly acknowledging that by baptism. I don't get this life because I've turned over a new leaf or got an education or I've got plenty of money. You remember what that one millionaire said years and years ago how much, when he was asked, how much money does a man need to be happy? And he said... Just a little bit more. That's because money will never make you happy. Education will never make you happy. Religion will never truly make you happy. It's Christ. It's trusting in Him. He's the one that gives you life. It's relying on Him and Him alone to take away that sin, to give you that life that really satisfies and to make it your possession forever. So this passage is saying very clearly that it's not of works. It's not that we could earn it. Why? So none of us can boast. See, I thought for sure that as a young person that if I was good enough, you know, good enough scout, good enough son, good enough in school, good enough to my friends, you know, kept my promises, things like that, I thought maybe all those good deeds would outweigh my bad deeds. But I also knew that I was a real liar and I broke things that belonged to other people. That's called vandalism. 
And I looked at things I shouldn't look at. And I treated my brothers pathetically, my two younger brothers. I didn't always honor my parents. I didn't always keep my words. I didn't always try my best. I picked on people, laughed at people, was very prejudiced as a kid with people who were different than me, laughed and joked and mocked them. And yet I was religious and I was a Boy Scout and a good student and by all appearances a good son. And I was hoping on the scale of God's justice that somehow my good deeds would outweigh my bad deeds and somehow, some way, I'd make it into heaven. And when I was going through catechism class, confirmation class in Methodist church, I was asked a question one day on a worksheet. How does a person go to heaven when they die? And I wrote down, they earn it, of course. When I got my worksheet back, the teacher very wisely put a gigantic red X. Oh, it hurt his self-esteem. No, I got a big red X because I was wrong. And I needed to know the truth of how to be right with God. And they wrote down John 3.16. I didn't even know who John was or what a 3 or a 16 was, but somebody showed me in the Bible what it says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That started the wheels turning in my little 13-year-old head things started to click, things started to make sense. That it wasn't religion that made me right with God. And it wasn't scouting that made me right with God or being good that made me right with God. Or nice, that, that, that's not what made me right with God. None of those things could make me right with God. None of those things could take away my sin. None of those things could guarantee God's love. None of those things could give me the life I was really looking for and longing for even as a teenager. The only way I could find that was through trusting Jesus Christ who died for me and rose from the dead. And he died for you and he rose for dead, from the dead for you. And that life and that love is available to you if you believe. That's the Easter surprise. It can be your possession, that love and life. Life beyond your wildest dreams, love beyond what you really deserve from God, that can be your possession if you just believe, regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of who you are or where you've been. Whether this is the first time you've heard it or you've heard it a thousand times and you've never acted on it. Today's the day to act on it. Today's the day to say, Jesus, I do believe in you. I trust you. Please forgive me of my sins. Please take away all those things that make me undeserving of your love and deserving of, your, de of your, your doom and destruction, your judgment. Take that sin away. Make me clean. Give me the life that I'm looking for and longing for. I trust you. Then help me live that life of good works that honors you. Not because I'm doing good works to somehow earn your favor and approval, but because I want to live a life that honors you, the life you've really created for me to be experiencing today. If this makes sense to you, if these surprises have surprised you and you want to act on it, then today's the day to act. It's Easter. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's risen indeed. And the surprise is, is that he loves you beyond what you and I deserve, that he has a life available to you far beyond your wildest dreams. 
And that life and that love can be yours through trusting him, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. Will you come to Jesus and trust in him for your forgiveness, acceptance with God, to experience his love and experience his life? Will you do that? We're going to pray now and then conclude our service with a song. While we're praying, we're just going to pause here quietly, and I just want to invite you, if you've never personally told Jesus that you, were, you wanted to trust him, you wanted to ask him to give you that love and life, to take away your sin and make you a child of God, why don't you just tell him that today? Tell him that you want to do that today. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit that I deserve your judgment. But I thank you that you love me and you want to give me your abundant, overflowing life. And so, Lord, I take that. I trust you. I rely on you. Help me now live a life that truly brings praise to your name to walk in those good works that you're creating for me. Why don't you just tell him that if you've never told him that before? Why don't you just pray that? Tell him that. The issue is not how religious you are. The issue is not, I need to get my act together before I come to God. The issue is, will you trust Jesus right now? Do that, my friend. So, Father, this day, our prayer is as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, as we celebrate those who have followed you in believer's baptism, as we go home and celebrate with our families and friends, we feast the goodness of God, the love of God, and the life of God that's available to us. I ask that, Father in heaven, that you would just truly truly help us to see how great your love and life is for us. Expose to us anything that we're trying to use as a substitute for that love or that life. Help us to see if there's anything that we're doing to try to perform, to get your approval, to somehow balance the scales in our favor. Help us to see we can't do that because you've done it all. Help us to trust in you, Jesus, day by day. We ask and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.